0: Awesome. Like, uh, like I mentioned, we're in our series called Draw Near. It's our study in the book of Hebrews. It's because in the book of Hebrews you see that six different times there's a command for us to draw near, that the people of God would draw near to God. And we see that first call in the text that was mentioned in our bumper video this morning in Hebrews chapter 4 where we can draw near to the throne of grace and not just draw near but boldly, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. And what we find there at that throne is mercy. For some, like those who have been redeemed, right, those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus, we can boldly approach God's throne. We've been looking at it over the last couple of weeks that Christ is enthroned, right? Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's been given all things, he's the heir of all things, he has this throne that is forever, and that we can Those who are redeemed, those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are saved and place their faith in him can approach that throne with confidence. And what you're going to find at that throne is mercy. Pretty awesome, right? If you look in Revelation chapter 20, however, not everyone's going to receive mercy when they approach that throne. That there is a day coming that we will stand before our God in judgment and that throne will be a throne of judgment. And so my, my, my uh, plea for you this morning is that you would find yourself in Christ Jesus. That you would place your faith in him. Because if you place your faith in Christ, you can approach the throne of God boldly, with confidence, knowing that you will not be rejected or condemned. You'll approach that throne and you will find mercy. What a beautiful thing it is to be called of God. You don't haphazardly approach the throne of God. He's a living, eternal, and holy God. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, like, I don't think we understand the holiness of God, how pure, how right he is. You don't just haphazardly approach that throne unless he's told you to, right? You don't just go to the throne of God unless the the king of that throne has beckoned you to come. But then he's also made it possible for you to do that. He's made it possible. Like, we're going to see in a few minutes how we can draw near to God, as our series calls us to, how Hebrews calls us to, because God drew near to us in sending Jesus that he sent him in the flesh, right? Christmas. feels like forever ago. We celebrate the incarnation of God, that Jesus came, was born as a babe in a manger, the most humble of beginnings. He humbled himself from an exalted heavenly throne, came to earth here so that he could live a sinless life that through faith becomes our righteousness, that he would die a brutal death, and that his blood would cover us and atone for our sins, right? Though our sins were as scarlet, they are washed Whiter than snow, I love that. Juxt- I love that like that comparison there. Right, sin is scarlet, but yet blood is scarlet. Blood is red, and that blood washes us clean and makes us able to come to the throne room of God. That's how we approach a holy God by being made holy by the work of Jesus. So this God who is rich in mercy made it possible for us to draw near to Him and find mercy find hope, and find actual life, eternal life in him. And so let's open up our text today, Hebrews chapter 2. Let's start in verse 11, and uh, we'll read to the end of the chapter. We read a couple of these verses last week, so I'm going to repeat them just so we can see the line of thought here. Verse 11 says, for he who sanctifies and he who, uh, excuse me, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why they are He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. These are Old Testament quotes. Remember, the Hebrews is uh, the New Testament book that quotes the Old Testament far more than any other book. And again, I will put my trust in him, verse 13. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Those are all Old Testament quotes. Uh, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That is so wonderful. We've been comparing Christ to angels Right? He's not helping the angels. He's helping the offspring, those that have been chosen by God. That's us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Let's pray before we move on this morning. And like I've done before in the past, I want to give you guys just a moment to pray on your own. Okay? So just, it'll be silent. And uh, I I don't want this to be an inactive thing. I want you to participate in this. I want you to pray over this service. Pray for your own heart. Ask God to, like, pray your biggest prayer right now, your biggest ask of God right now before we dig into this text. Go ahead. Father, I pray that you would hear these prayers. God, if I could ask one thing of you today, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see you, to behold you in your scriptures, that your Holy Spirit would open up the eyes of our hearts and the eyes of our lives, God, to just see the, the, the surpassing worth of you, how much of a treasure you are, God, if there's a tension in us, God, if we've been looking at this world and we just, we just know that there's more than our life, more than what we've been living, that maybe it's you that we've been missing, God, I pray that we would have our eyes open to that today, that we would confess our need of you, place our faith in you, and find this life, this hope, God, that we've been talking about, that we would find it completely in you. So, God, I thank you for my friends that are here today. I thank you that you've gathered us together to behold you, to see you. So, God, allow us to do that today. Give us the boldness and the humility, God, to keep responding to you by the prompting and the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. So, we went back to verse 11 today. And part of that is I wanted to. Uh, I didn't really touch on it a whole lot last week, but that verse eleven says, "For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source." And we we touched on it briefly last week. That that Jesus was sanctified through suffering, right? It says that 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 he was made perfect through suffering. And and I and I wanted to clarify because I want you to understand. It's not that Jesus was sinful, right? We know that he is the Son of God. That he lived a perfect and sinless life. And we see here in our text that he was tempted in every way that we are. In his suffering, in his trials, that he was tempted in every way that he are. But, but that idea of him being sanctified, him being perfected through suffering is that it was proven. He was proven to be a suitable sacrifice. That he was proven to be the one who would be the redeemer, the, the one that would justify and would be the one who helped sanctify us himself. Ultimately, that source, that one source, is the Father who sanctifies, and he sets us apart. When you think of sanctification, a lot of times that's being set apart for God, and it's being set apart from sin and being set apart to God. It's taking something that was common, and it's, and it's making it holy and for holy purposes. A lot of times you talk about that with the instruments in the temple in the Old Testament, that these things were consecrated or that they were sanctified and that they were set apart from the world, set apart from sin, and set apart to God. And so ultimately, it's God who does that. But we talked about last week how often the tool and the means of sanctification is suffering and uh, trial, not child. Sometimes children are a tool of sanctification. Amen, parents? Anybody know that? Maybe that was the Lord speaking through me at that moment. Right? Like, woohoo! Like, suffering and trial, yes, used of God, though that I might be more like him. Like, when James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure, pure joy, my brothers, when you're faced with trials of many kinds, like, nobody does it, right? Nobody looks at trial and goes, Woohoo! Yeah, pure joy. God is working. We see over and over through the scriptures, not even just in our lives, but in the life of Christ, that through those trials, though he didn't sin through any of them, though he was tempted in every way that you and I are, every way, think about that. Think about your deepest temptations, the ones that you don't talk about with your friends. Christ knows that temptation and stood firm, trusting in his Father, leaning in to the Spirit of God for help in those moments so that he would not succumb. So God sanctifies us. We have the same source as Jesus, the good, good Father, and suffering we face produces in us an endurance and a perseverance and a steadfastness and an actual living faith. Ever just like, I need my faith to grow. I want my faith to be stronger. Like, that happens through trial. That happens through suffering. It happens when, when you're faced with the opportunity to just respond in my flesh and respond to my sin or respond out of God's work in my life. And every time I do that, I crucify the flesh a little bit more. I put to death what is earthly in me just a little bit more and I continue to walk by the Spirit of God for the glory of Christ Jesus. When you know and trust that God is good and works everything for your good, as it says in Romans 8, for your sanctification, for your ability to further and better reflect the glory of Christ, you actually consider those trials and sufferings joy. Because you praise God that he is working in you. You praise God that he is making you more pure, that he is sanctifying you. You praise God that you're making me a little bit more like you. It's imitation, yes, like to imitate. Like you ever have somebody like imitate you, like want to be like you, like I want to be like Jesus? Yes, of course, there's that imitation, but it's more than that. He's bringing out the nature of God in you. Right when you come to Christ, right John chapter three when it talks about being born again, that which is born of flesh is flesh; that which is born of spirit is spirit. When when people talk about being born again, like I remember back in like the eighties, that was like seventies and eighties, that was a popular term. I remember some of my uncles looking at me and going, "Oh, you're one of those born agains, huh? You're one of those born agains." Like it was like this. I can't believe you're one of those born agains. You were like those radical crazy Christians, those born agains. Newsflash: like you can't be a Christian if you're not born again. That which, is, that which is of the flesh is flesh. That which is of the Spirit, you must be born. Jesus says, do not marvel that I say you must be born again. It's a spiritual thing that happens, not just a uh, transformation of a philosophy now that we live by. It's the Spirit of God alive in us. And so let's continue to read, uh, let's read uh, verse 11 one more time. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That is why I tell you, or that is why, excuse me, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's an awesome phrase right there. This is Jesus speaking of us. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Jesus is in the midst of the congregation singing God's praises with us. Think about that. Verse 13. I again, I will put my trust in him and behold, I am the children of God he has given me. Jump down to verse 17 real quick. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Did you see in verse uh, 11, I I pointed it out there, that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Have you um, ever been ashamed to be associated with somebody? Has somebody ever embarrassed you to such a degree where you're just like, uh, I don't know this guy. I don't. Have you ever been ashamed of somebody in your family? You know, you got the black sheep of the family, the one who seems to uh, uh, put a blight on the family name, maybe damaging your reputation, tarnishing that good family name. Or maybe that's you. <laughs> maybe that's you. Maybe you've done some horrible, poor, sad, just terrible things. Maybe you're that person who's been known as the screw-up and can't get your act together. By the way, in relation to God, that's us. That's all of us. If you're in that place today, if you're that person today, where you're the black, that's me as well. Like, and God... Jesus himself is not ashamed to call you brother. Like, how amazing is that? How amazing is that the God of the universe would would sit down next to you and put his arm around you and have a drink with you, like, chat with you, and own you as his brother. With everything that I've done, with everything that I've done wrong, with how many times I have soiled, like the, the good family name that I've soiled, the good family name, he's going to put his arm around me and not be ashamed of me? I was reading a uh, sermon by Tim Keller this week. Uh, may he rest in peace. What an amazing servant of God who just recently went home to be with the Lord. And... Uh, in this sermon he was pointing out, like if someone's going to commend themselves to other people, uh, they they do it in a resume. Like if you're going for a job, I don't know if you've had to apply for a job recently or anything like that, but like you put together your resume and it's all your accolades. It's all your accomplishments. And then you've got some references on there where some good people are going to vouch for you. And like Back in ancient cultures, back in the day, back in these Bible times, it was common for people to not just, you wouldn't put together uh, a resume, but you would put together your heritage, your family tree, your family line, your ancestry. And in that family tree, like, you would put, like, the people you were most proud of in that family tree, in that family line. Like, when you read through someone's um, ancestry, it would be all these noble people. Because, and, and if and if there were people in that family line that you were ashamed of, you would just conveniently leave them off. Let's not highlight them. Let's not point them out. Like, if we're not proud of them, if we're ashamed of them, let's just leave them off. So that when you look at it, when you look at that family line, you would see this great heritage. You would look and you'd say, look Look at this powerful, the powerful, mighty people in that line. Particularly if you were a king. If you were a king, you would want the most powerful and great leaders in that family line as a piece of your resume. Those who were noble and worthy. So if there's somebody that you're embarrassed of, someone who did dishonorable things, somebody that you would be ashamed of, you wouldn't include them in your family tree, in your family line. Only those who you were proud of. Do you realize? Did you realize that we. We get Jesus' family tree in Matthew chapter 1. We get Jesus' resume in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy as, as the, Matthew starts his gospel. And you ever notice the names that are included in that resume? Who he included? Like, like, first off, in ancient cultures like this, it wasn't common. It would be very uncommon to include women in your family line. Just in, in ancient cultures like that, they just, it, that just wasn't a thing. But not only did, did, did he have women, he had women like Tamar, who disguised herself as a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law. You have Rahab, a prostitute. You have unwed mothers like Mary. You look at the, the, the family line of Jesus himself, King Jesus himself, and it was full of people who have sinned and sinned hard. They have failed and embarrassed themselves to no end. And Christ includes them in his resume. The point is this. Jesus is not ashamed of you. But he calls you to draw near. He's not ashamed of you. Instead, he loves you enough to suffer and die in your place. To redeem you. Yes, to take all of that past, all of that sin, all of that shame, all of the good stuff you've done and all of the bad stuff you've done and to cover it in his blood, to cleanse it and to make it pure, to make you able to stand holy before a righteous God. He's the one who does the work in us. And it's so amazing that he's not ashamed. And he does it so that we would draw near to him, to be in relationship with him forever. He is not ashamed of you. So stop running and hiding. Think about the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. You guys can touch any tree in the garden. God looks at it like this garden is yours. Everything in it is good and very good. You can do anything you want in this garden. You're naked, it's fine. Don't even worry about clothes, right? Like, that was supposed to be funnier than what you guys made it seem. You can do anything. But don't touch that tree. What do they do? It's like talking to a three-year-old, right? What do they do? they got to touch the tree. They partake of the tree. All of a sudden, there's shame. They realize they're naked, and now they're embarrassed. What do they do? They run and hide. They run and hide in shame. God seeks them out. And yes, there's consequences for their sin. But he also clothes them, right? He clothes them. It's like one of the first pictures of what Christ does for us. And right there in that moment, you see this beautiful plan that, that yes, serpent, you deceive, but the seed of the woman is going to come and crush your head. That's the picture of Jesus. That's the picture of redemption, of salvation in him. If you're in this place today, stop running and hiding. He loves you and is not ashamed of you. Stop running and hiding, and draw near to him. Draw near. Let's read our text again. Uh, Verse 14, Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, slavery, excuse me, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might, be, uh, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So we share in the flesh and blood. We, he shares in our flesh and blood. He partook of the same things it says in verse 14. That's the incarnation of Jesus. Again, we mentioned it last week, right? God came down because God can't die. God is spirit and God is eternal. There's no beginning, there is no end. You cannot kill God. And so he comes down in flesh and blood. He comes down in the incarnation because the payment of sin as we talked about last week, the requirement of sin, the thing that plagues mankind is sin and the thing required by that sin is death. The wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life it says in Romans. That's why the priests went into the temple and they offered sacrifices to remove the stain of sin of the people. Lambs had to die because death is required of sin. But God isn't a man, and God can't die. So God had a plan from the moment sin entered the world, like we just talked about. God had a plan. Because he loves you, because he loves us, he put on flesh and became a man because human, because man can die. And he willingly did it. Because he loves you. He willingly went to the cross. John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, because of his love for us, he laid down his life for us because he knew that sin needed death, it needed to be paid. And by his bloodshed, he makes us clean. And because he is the eternal God, it is satisfied forever. We're going to see in a, in a couple of chapters here in the book of Hebrews how the blood of sheep and goats never could satisfy. It was all done in faith, pointing to the one who is the spotless Lamb of God who actually takes away the sins of the world. He came as a man because he had to die. But he is God, and so he forgives sin eternally. What a beautiful thing it is to be loved by God. Let's look at verse 14 again. We'll see the effects of Christ's death here. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, right? That's his humanity. That's the incarnation. That through death, and here's the effect of his death, he might destroy the one who has the power over death. That is the devil. And here's part two, verse 15 and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Christ's death, him willingly laying down his life for you and me, it defeats sin, it defeats hell, it defeats death, and it defeats the one who has the power over death, that is Satan himself. He did it. He beat it. He beat him. And because of it, we too will be delivered, like the part two of, uh, of verse uh, 15, right? He will deliver all those from death and the fear of it. As I mentioned last week, um, we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ. And that's suffering and death by dying to ourselves, right? Dying to our ambition, dying to our will, dying to our comforts, dying to sin and flesh. This is how we also will be glorified with him. If we are uh, buried with him, we will also raise with him. We place our faith in Christ and his work, and then we show forth that faith by laying down our lives and by following him. It uh, makes me think of Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, But what I had, whatever, I, uh, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of surpassing worth, the treasure that Christ is, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. The surpassing worth of Christ, I just want to gain him. I just want him. I counted everything as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Also makes me think of Romans chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Right? Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. He says in verse 2, By no means, certainly not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? I've said it before, like the first step in following Christ is following him in his death, dying to our sin, dying to our to ourself. Verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, right? That sin would have no rule over us anymore. Brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You ever have those moments where you knew that you blew it? You're still walking in your sin and not by the Spirit. I've had this thought many times in my life, like where you just knew that you blew it. I remember driving driving in the car this is this was about a year ago or so and i just like i haven't died enough like there's a, there's an element of that like you could be thinking of like like thinking about like getting older like i think about like getting older and wiser like maybe i would do things differently if i just were to just live a little longer you know gain a little age but but there's a part of me that's just like oh i haven't died enough yet there's still some of that old kevin in me that old flesh in me, that old, that old sinful desires in me that still wants to, to gratify myself. But by the grace of God, by the work of his Holy Spirit, he works me and they're like, oh no, like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crucify that a little bit more. I'm going to put that to death a little bit more that I might actually walk in the Spirit of God more and more. There's this temptation in us that we just need to be better. Like, like, Just need to be a little bit better, a little bit more moral. Just shine up the old Kevin a little bit more and I'll just look a little more holy. Like try to like reform my flesh. Like just try to like shine it up and maybe like beat it into submission a little bit more. Like, Like the flesh won't be reformed, just so you know. Like the flesh needs to be crucified. It needs to be put to death. Stop trying to save it. Stop trying to reform it. It's a wild beast. It's like trying to tame a lion. Put it to death. We give up and we die. (laughs) I I thought about that this week. I should put that on a t-shirt. Give up and die already. Right? A message of hope. (laughs) Right? Give up and die already. That my flesh would die just a little bit more and I would live to the glory of Christ. All right, read verse 14 one more time. We're getting close, I'm telling you. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those uh, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Did you get that? Lifelong slavery because of the fear of death. Are any of you guys afraid of dying? Anybody afraid of death? I think a lot of us, were like, we would be slow to admit that. Particularly like, and if you're outside of Christ, like if you don't walk with God, if you don't walk with God, like I think a lot of people would um, be afraid to admit that maybe that they are f- afraid of death. We would never, never admit that we are enslaved to it, that we are bound by this fear of death. People might even point to their life and how happy and carefree they are. How free and autonomous they are as proof that they're not afraid of death or dying and definitely not enslaved to it. I was reading a, a message by John Piper this week, and um, one of the ways that it enslaves us, he points out, is that it puts us in this dream world of denial, he says. This dream world of denial, that we would deny the fear, deny The actual thought of like we and if you think about it like we don't allow ourselves to think on such things. We don't allow ourselves to think about death and dying too often. And that in in and of itself is proof that maybe we are constantly like haunted by it. Like we are enslaved by that. We are afraid of death and dying, so we constantly distract ourselves. I had I remember a comedian uh, one time was talking about phones. And how, like, this thing, like, and and I've mentioned it over the last couple of weeks, and how we just constantly have to have this thing in our hands. And part of the reason, like, this comedian, like, you think he talks about nonsense things. He's talking about funny things. He talks about, like, it's, everything's just comedy. But he said, like, some of the most profound things about how we constantly have to distract ourselves with this because we hate being left alone with our thoughts. He's like, that's why you look down the road and everybody is driving and doing this. Like, we are, like, driving 4,000-pound missiles down the road with our phones in our hands because we hate being alone in the car with our thoughts. We have to pacify ourselves. Like I, It's funny because I, I've taken social media off my phone uh, for different lengths of time just because of the distraction that it is. And then I'll find myself sitting by myself alone with my thoughts and becoming anxious, full of worries and cares. And I will pick this thing up just to, like, I got to distract. Bra, bra, and I'm like, wait, it's not there. Like, I will open up Amazon for no good reason just to distract myself from my worries and my cares or maybe even the fear of death. But because of Christ, sin has no hold on me because he defeated the devil himself. He defeated sin Death and the devil himself, and those who place their faith in Christ Jesus also can have that same assurance. That same assurance where you don't have to fear death or be enslaved to the fear of death, but because there's hope in Christ Jesus that everything that I've done that makes me afraid of death has been covered by his blood that he put on flesh so that he could be that propitiation, that he could be that atonement, that, that, that fancy uh, $4 uh, seminary word, propitiation, meaning that he is the covering for my sin, that he stood in my place. He was sinless not worthy of death, not, not, uh, not deserving of death, but he instead stood in my place and died the death that was deserved of me so that I might take on his life and live eternal and not be enslaved to that fear that I would have hope and life through him. That part, you know, you've probably noticed over the last few months, like at the end of service, we've opened it up and tried to have more times of response and worship at the end of service. So that we can sit with our thoughts and sit with the Holy Spirit for a few minutes and squirm a little bit. I'm trying to, just so you know, I'm trying to make you, I'm trying to make you uncomfortable in those moments. Because I think those are beautiful moments for us to do some, I I say, do some business with the Holy Spirit. And if you guys, you guys know that tension, you feel that tension in you, and you're like, I got to get out of here. I know it. And some of you, like, we, we just do it. Like, I got to go to brunch. Going to brunch. Sunday brunch. Got to get out of here. Because we, we hate those tension moments where we know something is out of line with the scriptures or something needs to be confessed and repented of and do some business between us and God, and we hate those moments. But God calls us to draw near. He wants all of it. I, I've had this image in my mind over the last couple of weeks here, and I, and I prayed it out during pre-service prayer today. Like, my hands are full of carries and, uh, of cares and worries. My hands are full with, with all this stuff from my days. My hands are full of all this stuff, and Christ is calling me to lay it down before him, but yet i got to hold on to all of it. And I sit here and I squirm with him, but he just wants me to lay it down and to draw near. He wants all of those cares. He wants all of your concerns. He wants your the, the, whether it's the fear of death or the afterlife or eternity with him or not with him. Like he wants that, but he also wants the anxieties of your days, of how like how are you, how is your marriage going? Me and my husband were we're we're not quite there. Like he wants that. Me and my wife, were not quite, he wants, how are you doing with raising the kids? You got any concerns or worries about that? Amen. He wants that. We just open up our hands and lay it at his feet. And what he does is he then fills us with himself. He fills us with himself. And so today, again, draw near. Let's look at verse 17 again. Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. We'll talk more about that in upcoming sermons. Uh, That's a common theme over the next couple of chapters here in in Hebrews. The end of verse 17 there, it says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Like I said, that's that's just a big fancy seminary word for atonement or covering that he's the substitute, that he stood in my place and died for my sins. This is where God in his rich mercy pardons and blesses sinners. He pays the price of death for them once for all time with his eternal sacrifice of himself. That's what Christ has done for you. And that's what becomes yours by faith in him. His suffering and death makes you clean from your sins. And by faith you are justified, another fancy church word for just meaning put in right standing with him. That's what God is. Do you see what he has done for you, how much he loves you? He loves you enough to put on flesh and make the way. Let's look at verse 18 really quickly before we conclude. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I love this. Anybody ever tempted in here? (laughs) I love it because not only does Christ make the way, not only has he stepped into humanity to be the sacrifice, and by faith, all of that is put on us and we are made right before God, but he doesn't just like send you out the door and like, there you go, good luck, right? He doesn't just send you on your way, a little pat on the butt, go get him, tiger. Good luck out in the world. Like he's going to help you along the way. He who is tempted, he who suffered, he who was proven pure, he's going to help those who are tempted. He's going to help us in our weakness. He's going to sustain us through the way. He upholds the world by the word of his power as we looked at in chapter one. He's going to uphold you as well. He's able to help us. And give us that way out, that way of escape, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, when we are tempted. He's going to fill us with his spirit so that we can walk by that spirit and not gratify the flesh, as it says in Galatians 5. And so today, once again, as the band comes and we wrap up, draw near. Draw near. Draw near to your God today. As part of our response this morning, in a few moments, we're going to go to the table of the Lord. We're going to make communion a part of our response this morning. And um, as I always say, this table is an open table. Uh, you don't have to be a member of this church uh, to participate in communion this morning. But I do, you do need to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. If you placed your faith in him, if you placed your trust in him, this table is open to you today. If you have not done that, um, I, would, I would say, let's not partake together then. Let's not partake in this moment together, because this is for the church of Jesus Christ. But as, as we've looked at the text today, and as we've seen what Christ has done, and we've seen that we have the ability to draw near to him, I hope the Holy Spirit has been working on you, that he's been speaking to you, and that you've been responding to him both in your heart and in your mind. And so as before we go to this uh, moment, let's, let's pray. And um, I would just continue to ask you to respond to whatever God is doing in you. Maybe you're here in this place and um, maybe you know that you are far from God. Maybe you've walked with God at one point or maybe you've never walked with God, but you know that you've been far from God. And you know that his spirit is calling you. You know that his spirit is beckoning you to put your faith in Christ, to draw near, and today you're just like, I just need to do it. With that, heads bowed and eyes closed and no one's looking around. If you're in this place today and you're like, Kev, I know that God is calling me and I need to draw near to him. I need to place my faith in Jesus and just draw near once again. If you're in this place, I'd love to just pray, pray for you and I'm not going to make you stand or anything like that, but if you just want to look up and catch my eye, so I know that I can pray for you and include you in that prayer. I'd, I'd love to do that, so please uh, if you know that today's a today's day for you to place your faith in Jesus or maybe to stop running and just draw near to him, just look up and catch my eye. And let me pray for you. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, dear. (laughs) Father, we thank you and praise you for the ability to draw near. You are holy, you are righteous, and you you dwell in unapproachable light. And there's no way a sinful being like me could ever approach your throne except for Jesus. Jesus. And I thank you, God, that you have drawn near to us in sending your Son and his work on the cross and the blood that was poured out that makes us holy, that makes us righteous, that makes us able to stand before a holy God in his throne. And so, God, I thank you for you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in us and work in your church and that we would continue to submit ourselves to you. And when we fall short, that we would just draw near once again. God, that we wouldn't run, that we wouldn't hide, but that we would continue to hear your voice and your beckoning, continue to lay ourselves at your feet, knowing that you will continue to sustain us and fill us, meet us, and that you will save us. We thank you, God. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me? The band's going to sing. We'll uh, maybe make our way down the center aisles and we'll receive the elements. Take those elements back to your seat and uh, wait just a moment. We'll partake of the elements together. Um, But let me actually, let me pray for communion before before we get started here as well. Father, I thank you for the table. I thank you, God, that we can come to your table. God, that we can share in your sufferings, but God, we will also share in your resurrection. And that it's because of the body and the blood of Jesus broken on the cross that you have made us yours and you have made us each other's. That you have made us a church, you have made us a body because of your work on the cross. And so, God, as we come to your table and remember your work, God, be glorified. God, I pray that you continue to enliven our hearts to you. That we would see and behold, God, your sacrifice and who you, who you are and what you've done for us. And God, how that we live then with each other. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's receive the elements together.